Good morning again, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I get to serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today, I also get to introduce a new preaching series in the book of Romans, a series we're doing alongside, again, alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. Title of the series, as you've seen, The Gospel is for Everyone. Now, I think you'll see as we examine Romans and God willing, as God's word examines us, that it's really easy to take this truth for granted, if not overlook it entirely. The truth that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is for everyone. Would you stand to your feet to honor God's word? We will read the first 15 verses of Romans chapter 1. Here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith from, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may be able, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word and teach us by your word Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, your gospel is for everyone, and everyone here in this sanctuary today is from one of two categories at least. Either, one, we we don't know you, whether we know that or we don't. We, We don't know you, or number two, we do know you. And you've placed us in the lives of people who don't know you, that you love. 
And so, Lord, show us, not by my opinion or anyone else's, show us what you have to say about that whole arrangement of, a, of us being able to know you and grasp the gospel and share the gospel in our lives, in our schedules, and how we live. Rearrange us even. Amen. In recent months in my home, I've noticed a pattern that's bothered me. My wife will cook an amazing meal, often with roasted vegetables and uh, fresh grains and a savory entree, and she'll place that steaming glory on the table for us all to just smell. And so we're gathered around the table, and here's what seems to happen invariably in that moment. We'll sit there at the table, the sacred place of nutritional nourishment as well as relational nourishment in our home, this sacred place, and my kids will maybe pick at the food for a little while, maybe maybe kind of take some bites. My youngest will put some ketchup on her plate and then just eat the ketchup with a spoon. And then often my kids, from youngest to oldest, will just kind of push the plate away. And it's grievous to me when it happens and when I'm doing the dishes and throwing the food away. It's grievous to my dog knowing that I don't put a lot of it in her bowl. But if you think that's sad, their behavior, just consider my response. It's even more sad. Once, as we were going to a dinner table, knowing the pattern that's been preceding that night, my wife was cooking salmon. Uh, Salmon is, as you know, more expensive than spam. And it was smelling so good. So I just kind of naturally went into the fridge and started gathering some other stuff to put on the table. My wife says, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm putting some cheese rolls and stuff on the table. She says, why? And I said it. <laughs> I said, I don't want to waste the good food on the kids. Because <laughs> they're just going to waste it. Now, I'm not sure if I triggered her dietitian disdain or her mama wrath more. But I, I'll just say, I was firmly reminded that there's well-researched precedent for placing all the food, the real food, the good food, on the table, family style, in front of the family, and just expecting, trusting that eventually their appetites will adjust accordingly. After all, my wife really believes that real food is for everyone. Real food is for everyone. Now, If real food, good food, true nourishment is for everyone, how much more is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for everyone? In other words, if my view of the family table was sinful and wrong, how much more do we need a new perspective for how to see this communion table as it relates to us And as it relates to everyone, we need a new perspective just like I needed a new perspective. So I pray that as we go through Romans, and today as we examine the first 15 verses of Romans, that you'll hear the voice of the Lord not only calling you 
to personally taste and see that the Lord is good, but that you'll also recognize how he's placed others around you in your life because he wants to use you to draw others to his table and to share in the eternal feast that he's already prepared. After all, the temporary appetites of my neighbors and friends don't dictate whether or not I share the spiritual nourishment that I've received. I share because I've tasted and seen. I know what it's like to be someone who used to try to feed my appetites with sin and perversion and how I was never satisfied. I just broke myself and the other teenagers around me. And I know what it's like to go from that to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so I can't keep it to myself. I must share the gospel because it's not mine to hoard. So as I work through our text today, I'm going to address two different questions. Number one, why did Paul write the letter to the Romans? That's our first question that we're going to examine. Next question is, what does our text say about the gospel? I'm just going to have a few gospel takeaways from our text. Spend most of our time on this first question. Why did Paul write the letter to the Romans? Now, not to oversell you on this, but I think that if you find out why God had Paul doing all the things that he did in writing the letters he wrote, and specifically why God had Paul writing this letter, you might gain some real insight about why God has you alive today and sitting here in these church seats that you're in, and why God has ordained for you to have the neighbors that you have and the friends that you have, and why you have life and breath for such a time as this. That's not an oversell. That's if you can look clearly past your presumptions about the Bible into the book of Romans, I think God's going to show you some things about the big life purpose questions. And just maybe you might languish less in the emptiness of trying to answer those big questions on your own or with your career or whatever else. So a little background on Paul. You need to see a little bit of the history of Paul before understanding why he wrote to the Romans. Paul, a few decades before writing this, he went from being a self-described super Jew to the epitome of what he once hated and tried to kill and persecute amongst Jews and non-Jews. He was the, 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 the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, he said. And anyone who didn't align with the Judaism that he was accustomed to and that he grew up with and that he was trained under the, the teacher, the renowned teacher Gamaliel, anyone who didn't, didn't abide by this, like these sects, these Jewish sects that rose up, like the one that believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and even the Son of God, Paul found it his mission to crush these sects. Got to be careful how I'm saying that. Stay away from that one. Then you see in Acts chapter 9, Paul had uh, received some inside information from the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. He, he'd received kind of the modern-day equivalent of the IP addresses of the people who downloaded the gospel. He, he, had, he had names of people in the city of Damascus, Syria, 
people who in his mind had sold out to becoming believers in Jesus because of all this superstition of others who claimed to have seen this Jesus who was, who was hung on a Roman cross and died, this Jesus now alive. And so he was going to go crush this Jewish superstition for the sake of the faith. And he was on his way on a capture and kill mission to Damascus, the synagogue in Damascus, when he himself was captured. He was captured by, captivated by the beauty, the transcendence, the holiness of Jesus, who personally appeared to Paul, the risen Christ, appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and commanded him to stop dead in his tracks. Literally said, Jesus said, Paul, why, or Saul, why, same name, by the way, Saul, Paul, same guy, why are you persecuting me? Saul ended up giving his life to Jesus. He became a Christian. The glory of Jesus in that moment was so bright that it literally blinded Paul. And he had to be led into Damascus. And check this out. This is, we need to slow down and read the story, how ridiculous the details sometimes seem. The way that God chose for Paul to receive his sight back was one of the guys he was there to try to kill originally. He had to ask him to come pray for him. How humiliating is that for Paul, and how dangerous is it for this dude? So this dude named Ananias, not, not, Ananias, not the same Ananias from a few chapters earlier who lied to God and God had to kill him right there. That's a cool story too, a few chapters earlier. But this Ananias of Damascus went and prayed for Paul. Now imagine if that was you. You're a believer uh, in, in your culture, the, the persecution, people who don't like you want to call you a superstitious or a bigot or whatever cultures call Christians, whatever blessing we receive for, for being believers in Jesus. Let's say someone came to you and you heard maybe the FBI called you and said, hey, this ISIS member is on a mission to kill you. He's got your name. We found his name, your name and his stuff. So be, beware. We're looking for him. Just, just kind of lay low. What if you then, after a week or two of just kind of being worried, you're praying about it, and, and all of a sudden you get a push notification that this person is there and they, they want you to come and meet them and pray for them. That's Acts chapter 9. Go read the Bible again after today. It's amazing. And so Paul is led to Christ by Christ himself, as he later proclaims. And then Ananias, Ananias prays for him to receive his sight back. And all of a sudden, Paul becomes an instrument, becomes an instrument for the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world. God uses the foolish things of the earth to shame the wise, as Paul would later write. Jesus' staunchest enemy, Paul, Saul, becomes his most passionate follower. Jesus himself proclaimed this. He who is forgiven much loves much. He said that about a prostitute. It explains for me a lot of my passion. That's why Paul was used by God so mightily, because he was forgiven much, loves much. Paul was willing to kill Jews that believed in Jesus, this over-adjustment of Judaism, this extreme sect of a view. He's willing to kill them, and now he's a representative of that very thing. And not just that, but Paul would become on the, the most controversial fringes of Christianity. 
fact, he was so far out there that there was still unresolved conflict within Christianity about some major cultural issues. Do we let these non-Jewish believers fully into the church thing? It's a bit scandalous. Paul was one of the forerunners of the yes, indeed, be perfectly uncomfortable culturally because the gospel demands it. Paul was one of the main forerunners of this. And that's what leads this fringe issue of cultural uh, connection and controversy leads us to why Paul wrote the letter of Romans. Now, Paul had never been to the church in Rome. Most of the letters you see Paul write in the New Testament, he'd already visited these people, but not Romans. So he, had, he needed to give a little bit more context to these people about the gospel, and it very well could be the cultural clashes between Jews and non-Jews that they're experiencing. You see, some think that the church in Rome started without an apostle actually going to Rome. Maybe during the, the Pentecost revival that we see in Acts chapter 2, one of the, the Jewish believers went back, or a group of them went back to Rome and brought the gospel, and there was some communication there. And so Paul is wanting to go to Rome and visit them eventually. But see, one of the problems in the, in the meantime there, problems in, in this early church was the cultural clash between the Christians of Jewish descent and the Christians who were starting to trickle in from the Greek world, the non-Jews. Now, if you, if you think there's, there's some cultural clash in our church, okay, so there's, there's, the, there's some gospel energy, music uh, energy, and then there's some stoic evangelicalism like stiffness here. Now, if you're white, don't get your feelings hurt because I'm white too, if you didn't notice. Uh, and I might even be more of the more energetic side, so there might not be energy culture clash, but there's some rhythmic culture clash. Like, I still can't figure out, is it one and three or is it two and four? And people keep telling me this and I keep forgetting. But I'm just saying this. The culture clash of our day, the very many, this was still a major thing of discomfort that Paul was saying, look, in this letter he's saying, you don't have cultural issues. You have gospel issues. It's an inability to see the transcendence of the gospel. And that's why Romans is one of the richest meals in God's word that you could ever eat. And hear me, church. Today, if you're called by the name of Jesus, it's your deepest identity, and you do not primarily have cultural issues with other believers that are different than you. We don't have political issues. We have a great need to know how beautiful, transformative, expansive is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul's writing this letter, and that's why we need to see it. Paul wrote the letter so that the church would be more united around the gospel within the church and more united in their joint mission from the church. I'm going to go into that a little bit more. Now, more united in the gospel within the church. Check out knowing this, that he wanted them to see the gospel and unite around that, not around my preferences, not around your preferences, not around the middle ground, but something higher, okay? Check out these words. The gospel, verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according 
to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received, we have received grace and apostleship. Paul is saying, I don't get my authority from you, from your votes about whether y'all like me or not. I don't get my authority from the Jewish Sanhedrin. I don't get my authority from any men. I get my authority from God himself who captured me, who captivated me. The sweet name of Jesus, which is like none other, compels me and appoints me to come to you and to come to you so that you would be united in something greater than you're finding unity in and so that we could have a mission that's greater, more dangerous than we're aware of. That's why Paul's writing the letter. He's saying, you might see how Jesus was descended from David, and he fulfilled the, the messianic promises. Or maybe you don't see that. And if you don't see that, you can just see this, that this man who was dead is no longer dead, and he's still alive. And what does that say about life? And both, both of these are important here in, in our text. That he was descended from David. He fulfilled the Jewish law. Because there are people that rose from the dead. You look in the New Testament, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, they rose from the dead but they didn't die for our sin. Other people can claim to die for someone's sin. The soldiers fight for your freedom, but only Jesus is a perfect sacrifice because he was descended from David, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and therefore was the only one who's ever been qualified to be a perfect, final sacrifice tearing the veil between God and man so that we could be one with him. His sacrifice on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed is a perfect sacrifice. And God said, this is the man descended from David, my son, and this is the one I'll rise again from the dead. And who Jesus is and what God has done with this Jesus is the compelling nature of the gospel itself. Who Jesus is and what he does is the gospel, and God has made it plain by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying, this Jesus, who God rose from the dead, he has been raising hearts to new life, giving new life and regeneration, new creation to people, both Jews and Greeks, out of his choice. Not just the people that you're comfortable with. So Paul wanted believers in Rome to be more united around the gospel within the church and also more united in their mission from the church. Because you're going to see that Paul writes to these people who are already having discomfort culturally. And he takes that level of discomfort and he's about to get it, make it way worse. <laughs> he's about to throw him a curveball that says, okay, you might have some discomfort and confusion about Jews and Greeks together, but let me just throw in barbarians on top of that. If you're a little bit uncomfortable with kind of the, 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 the cultural mix you have, let me just extend the boundaries of your comfort even further. That's what he came to do. That's why he writes this letter. Check out, I'm just going to remind you of the, the cultural boundaries through a few of these verses. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Now, this last word, nations, is the, the Greek word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicities. 
Or verse 13, this word ethnos is, is given again. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented by God, by the devil. We don't know. He's been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Lord, be with them. Amen. Now, when he says to be among the Gentiles, his desire, again, the same word. This is the word Gentiles, our word ethnos. He wants to go to the ethnos. Now, he could mean the Greeks, but he makes it very clear that his boundary for his mission is further than that. He's saying, I want you to be united with this, but there's, there's even more. And because it's even more uncomfortable, you're going to need a greater view than you currently have of the gospel. Verse 14, I am under obligation from the gospel. That's way too great. For me to keep to myself. Obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Both to wise, which correlates with the word Greeks, and to foolish, which correlates with barbarians. So, so he's calling the barbarians foolish. Foolish. This word barbarians, the original word uses barbaros, the Greek word that means uh, rough, rude, harsh, morally brutal, speaking a foreign language. It's not nice in the English translation. It wasn't a nice word then. Paul wanted specifically, he had some practical aims, as we know. He wanted the church in Rome to be united as he came so that they would welcome him, but also so that they would send him onward to the barbarians. Now, who are the barbarians? People in Spain, the white Europeans in Spain. At the time Paul was writing, Greek culture had its most civilized headquarters in places like Antioch of Pisidia, modern-day Turkey, or in Alexandria in northern Africa. And because of this, the first few centuries of the spread of Christianity These were some of the churches with the greatest scholarly works. Northern Africa, modern-day Turkey, some of the the greatest culture centers of church. Black people and brown people. And Paul is saying, I want to expand the gospel not just from the civilized people, but to these barbarian people, like in Spain. And people would dare, even a century or two after that, would dare to go even to the more barbaric people even further north, the Germanic tribes, the Irish even. I've heard people say things before like, man, uh, and you might have heard these, these weird messages, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion. Well, historically, thank God, it it eventually became that because of the expansive power of the gospel and the passion of men like Paul— But when you hear people say things like this, it's foolish. They don't know better. And quite frankly, they don't need to be educated. So don't post anything. What they need is the gospel. They need the gospel. They need you to receive it, chew on it, apply it in in the most uncomfortable places in your soul, and to share it. The blessed, the blessed foolishness of God using an anti-Greek, anti-barbarian man, 
Jewish man like Paul to become the greatest blessing to the Gentiles. This is the gospel's scandal culturally that crushes our hatred, our discomfort. The gospel is bigger than our cultural boundaries. Maybe your boundaries are just the inherent busyness in our culture. Maybe your boundaries are plain and simply discomfort with people that are different than you for whatever reason. But can you do this? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, God cares about your comfort less than he cares about the souls of others? I thought I was going to stop at the first part. The gospel is bigger than our cultural boundaries. Now, practically, Paul was raising money in this letter to go from Rome to Spain. I just have to say something real quick, kind of off-topic-ish about this. Our church, God uses in a unique way to bring the gospel from where it is to where it's going. And part of that is, involves money. Oftentimes you see churches have trouble planting expansive moves of God in cities like our city, reaching campuses like this campus. And let me just tell you, it's just tricky financially. There is a risk that's unique in a city like this. Our church has been a really special church in history. Again, I'm not overselling this. Uh, we just talked in our financial meeting last week. Again, we've shared things like our church is almost double in the, the common ratio in kind of modern evangelical churches of the amount of people attending to the amount of people giving. Now, I had to adjust that in our last financial meeting because our church is not almost double in the ratio. Our church has been more than double in the ratio. So practically, look around the room. Most of the people that you see in this room are participating financially in the mission of God in this church. Let's give the Lord a hand. Let's say, thank you, God. Praise the Lord. This is unusual because God is wanting to do unusual things in us. You can look around again. There's some beautifully unusual things happening in us, but from us too. We send missionaries to this campus and to other places. We see God do great things in every nation. Thank God that we are a part of every nation in name, but also in mission. Amen? Why did God choose to allow Paul to write the letter to the Romans? For gospel unity within the church and for missional unity from the church. Now, with the time I have remaining... What does this text, the first 15 verses of Romans 1, what does it say about the gospel that we need to know today? I see three main things in our text that are gospel takeaways. Obedience from faith, peace from God, and strength from believers. Now let's go to the first one towards the top. Obedience from faith. I just want to warn you to beware that most often we 
settle in our minds with reductions of this, whether obedience without faith or faith without obedience. So obedience from faith. We have received grace, verse 5 says, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That word can also be rendered obedience from or out of faith. True obedience is from faith. And true faith leads to obedience. Jesus was declared to be God's son by the spirit of God who raised him from the dead. And as 1 John 3 says, we are declared to be God's children by him making us new, calling us to himself, creating in us sonship and daughtership that leads to obedience. So Jesus is not just our example of faith. He's not just our inspirational symbol. He's the object of our faith. He is the forerunner of our faith. He is the firstfruits of our faith. The preeminator is the literal word. The one who on him hinges the new creation. From his resurrection, we can be resurrected ones, made new, regenerated. So practically, if you don't obey, if your life doesn't show a pattern of ongoing, increasing obedience, I want to warn you, don't try to obey. We're talking about faith from obedience, not obedience that can somehow try its best to earn faith. Faith that leads to obedience. Obedience from faith. If you're not obeying, don't try. It may be that you're just not rooted in God. You're not made new by God. And you can't will yourself to be new and recreate yourself. Just like a tree that's an apple tree can't recreate itself to become a peach tree. Don't try to obey. Because you might just deceive yourself into thinking you're obeying. Like Paul. He lived a, he, he called himself like the, the perfect Pharisee, the perfect Jew. And it wasn't obedience. It just looked like obedience because it was spiritual striving. It was dead religion. It wasn't obedience. There's no obedience without faith. And there's no faith without obedience. So if you don't obey, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because you need to die. Take up your cross and follow Jesus from faith. Faith that the same God who rose him from the dead has the power to give you new life. And what, what else is your hope? Nothing else. It's obedience from faith. And here's what, what comes from that. Peace from God. Not peace from centering your mind, not peace from anything else. Peace from God. Check out how this letter continues to open up. Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True and lasting peace, which people give their lives for. True and lasting peace can only come from the same God who creates us and has the power to recreate us and give us his peace. Now, I don't, I don't want to draw a false connection to something that Paul or God didn't intend, but I, it's hard for me to not notice that when he says, peace from God, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes to share about how he's praying for them. Now, I, I know that in the Bible, at least anecdotally when I look, there's so much peace that comes through the mechanism of prayer. And for instance, Philippians, do not be anxious, but with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God, pray, tell him what you want. And then it says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. When I commune with God and I'm, and I lay everything else down and all the complications down and I'm praying there is a peace even before the answering of my prayers. There's a peace that can only come from God. Better than if you have the prayers answered the way you want them. It's peace from God. Now, if obedience from faith shows the root of God making us new, I believe that peace from God is like the fruit that we can uh, smell and taste. Obedience from faith Peace from God. Strength from believers. Strength from believers. Now, if obedience from faith is the root, the the gospel, Jesus making us new, and we're not just trying to be Christian-y, but we're walking out faith, and we see the fruit of it in the peace that comes only from God. I believe that the strength that we get from other believers is like the fertilizer that just keeps us growing in that. This, this last thing, strength from believers that we see in verse 11, it's a huge means by which God preserves that which God only can plant. So if he plants new faith in us that leads to obedience, that's the real faith that only God can give. And if we see the peace of God in our lives that compels others to him, will we grow in that? by the gifts of God and other believers. Check this out. Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. Uh, I won't get into this very much, but there, there are some people who actually read the Bible that think things like that the spiritual gifts have ceased. It's a weird, they've read the Bible, this one verse, I'm not even gonna get into it, kind of weird. But let me just tell you, the spiritual gifts have not ceased, even if you've ceased to use what God's given you. So stop it. Use your gifts for others. You don't just come to church to hear someone else's song. You have something to give here. You have something to give in our growth groups. I lead a few growth groups. I actually lead one, but I go to another one that I don't lead. Why do I go to so many? Remember, he who's forgiven much loves much, and I just need a lot more love. I need a lot more forgiveness. I have a lot of sin to confess. I love confessing my sin with other believers and receiving the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts to strengthen me that they have. Every once in a while, I think I can share something encouraging with someone else, but I need discipleship. 
And I go to growth groups. The older we've gotten as a church, the more convinced that we've become, especially with our elders, that the best way forward is to look back on some of the ancient power and the truths of the habits of God and his word. Like, for instance, communion. Communion is not just a dead Catholic relic that, you know, the Catholics do just so that they can do something in their service or whatever we would think. It's a transformative habit that facilitates faith and growing in the faith. It it compels my whole person, not just my mind, but all my senses to remember what Jesus has done. And just like that, discipleship, this, this, as much as we've progressed as a culture in so many ways, I guess, and uh, technology or something like that, what we need most is true relationship. And discipleship is relationship. And it's always hard. It always requires some inconvenience to be in relationship. But God grows us in it. I want you to be prayerful as we go through this series that God has called us to share, to grow in him, our relationship with God. That's why we go to God's word and we respect the word of God. We grow in our relationship with God. and We we come to church on Sunday. We come to growth groups throughout the week to encourage our relationships with others, to strengthen others. And we do this thing in our growth groups called needs and names. Everyone in the circle has a need that we're going to pray for, and everyone in the circle has a name of someone not in the circle that we're going to pray for. People that we have an intention to inviting into relationship and connecting to the church, and that maybe if God empowers us, which he does, that we will be compelled to invite, and they'll be compelled to join in the meal of God. I want to invite you before you leave today, if you don't have a VIP prayer list, pick one up at the connections table. They're hanging on the wall. And ask God to show you people in your life, at your work, your neighbors, people that you're going to reach out to this spring, this summer, because the gospel is for them. Let me be specific. The gospel is for them through you. The hope of glory, Christ in you. In you. Would you pray with me?